Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to find hope in the high-stakes world of medicine and healthcare. My first guest is Dr. Dean Waldman. Dr. Dean studied medicine and trained at Yale, Chicago Medical School, Mayo Clinic, Northwestern, and Harvard. He also earned his MBA from Anderson Graduate Schools as a consultant for hospitals, public and private organizations, as well as governments. Dr. Dean combined systems analysis and other management tools with the principles of good medical practice to diagnose and effectively treat sick systems such as healthcare. He is the author of Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, States Care, and Market-Based Medicine. Dr. Dean, thanks for joining me on the show today. It is my pleasure to be here. And you happen to have the most beautiful broadcasting voice. I told you that before we started the chatting, but you, you do have the voice of a broadcaster. I actually have been on our local radio a number of times, and the first or second time that uh, a well-known man named Bob Clark said, are you um, auditioning to take my job? (laughs) I said, no, thank you. Pretty smooth, doctor. Pretty smooth. Let's talk about this book and let's talk about the ills in the U.S. healthcare system as as consumers of healthcare. And we all are on some level, unless we do not have access, which is part of this cancer, I think, that you're talking about. Indeed. I think the way to start is to understand where the book came from, which is I had uh, an epiphany, what we call in my family and apostrophe from the uh, movie Hook, um, whenever somebody has this light bulb arrive, oh, you had an apostrophe, because that's what SME called epiphanies. Anyway, <laughs> um, uh, I had this this uh, epiphany. I practiced medicine for a long period of time um, and then went to uh, business school. I was the chief of cardiology at the University of Chicago. Uh, and didn't feel that I was doing a good job as a manager or as a leader. So I went to business school. I got my MBA and um, make a long, uh, rather painful story short. uh, I came to this realization that the problem with our healthcare system comes from systems thinking, which is actually the exact same thing as practicing Good medicine. What I mean by that is this simply a doctor doesn't treat symptoms. A doctor, a good doctor, 
tries to find out the cause of the patient's illness, and then treat that cause along with, by definition, if you're treating the cause, you're treating the symptoms. So I said to myself, well, let me think about healthcare as though it were a patient that walked in my office. And when I started looking at it that way and using all these management tools that I learned in business school, it became clear that our government, our country, uh, we have been treating the symptoms of the a sick patient called healthcare and not even looking at much less trying to treat the cause of those symptoms. And as long as you treat only the symptoms, the illness will come back. So that's what the book is about. And the other thing I need to, to say uh, rather strongly is that this book was very hard for me for the following reason to write the following reason. I've published a, a lot of medical papers, and there's a certain way that you write for a medical publication that's quite frankly boring, bloodless. You don't ever use the word I. You don't talk about stories. You just give the information that your studies have revealed, and you uh, explain the statistical methods and then the conclusions, and that's basically a medical paper. Well, nobody in his right mind, not in the public, wants to read anything like that. Doctors do and bioscientists do, but you know the general public doesn't. And I wanted the general public to read this book because they are the only ones who can fix healthcare. The people in Washington, I didn't say either party because it's both parties. The people in Washington will never fix it because Washington is the cause, but we'll get to that later on. <laughs> anyway, the point, the point about the book is that so I had to make this book very human. And so there are all these stories of people and events uh, that are very uh, intriguing to the reader and makes it easier for the reader to get hold of, to grasp the reasons why this system doesn't work. So let's jump into uh, more of these reasons, because in, in, in your book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, you talk about Washington and the insurance companies practicing more medicine than the doctors themselves. And th that seems odd to me. I think I understand where you're going with this, but explain, explain to us a little bit more deeply about this. Well, uh, I mean, I could go for an hour and a half on that alone. <laughs> However, I, I won't uh, do that. I'll simply give you a perfect example, which is uh, a, a patient comes into a doctor's office with migraine headaches or with uh, something that requires a drug treatment. And so the doctor takes a history, does a physical, looks at the old medical records and says, you know, Mrs. Jones, I think all things considered, especially with your allergies, the best uh, drug is this drug X. We'll just call it X. And so he goes to the doctor, goes to his computer and tries to order on the uh, uh, electronic prescribing program, order that drug for this patient, Mrs. Jones. Well, guess what happens? Number one, it takes him forever to get through all these screens, but eventually he gets to her, her health plan and her health plan, he puts in uh, his diagnosis in Mrs. Jones and the health plan 
uh, uh, spits out the uh, uh, program, spits out computer program, spits out. These are the drugs you can use under that plan. Oh, it's it's plan based, right? Plan based and the diagnosis based. So but the truth is what they're really doing is offering that doctor the cheapest and the lowest risk, which means the least likely to work medications. And so if he wants drug X and he thinks that's the best uh, drug for Mrs. Jones, but it's not on the list, which is often the case. I'm not talking about a rare event. I'm talking about an everyday event for every doctor. He looks at the list and goes, but my drug is not on the list. And that's the drug that is best for her, for her conditions and her history, et cetera, et cetera. He, the doctor or she, because there are more now um, uh, uh, women graduating medical school than men, um, the doctor can't prescribe what he wants the insurance company, or in this case, the pharmacy benefit management program, is literally practicing medicine and taking away his or her judgment. And um, that's how one of the many ways that the bureaucracy, I won't say the government, I'll just say the bureaucracy and leave it that way. Uh, The bureaucracy practices medicine on Americans more than the physicians practice medicine. So this actually sounds like dispassionate healthcare in the sense that this third party, the people who are overseeing the pharmaceuticals, are pers- are allowing the doctor to prescribe based solely on symptoms and not on relationship and actual the art of medicine. Actually, it's worse than that. It's not even the symptoms. It is because remember that that patient is unique, that Mrs. Jones has a history. And so they just say, well, if uh, the patient has headaches, you give this. Yeah. But I've already tried that in the past. And that doesn't work for Mrs. Jones or she's allergic to that medication or it causes high blood pressure and she already has high blood pressure. So I should give something else. The point is that the doctor's judgment is the best decision maker for that drug. But his or her judgment has been taken away. That sounds extremely frustrating. Well, guess what? It is. And if you ask physicians across the board why they are frustrated, unhappy and leaving medicine, they will tell you, in essence, that we have responsibility, but not authority. And that's one of I've done psychological research uh, uh, called the culture of healthcare, And one of the biggest deals, one of the biggest factors was why are so many nurses and doctors unhappy with practicing medicine? And the answer is, or practicing nursing, and the answer is that the system in which we work makes our professional lives harder, not easier. Well, the system is is sick, and really we're not practicing health maintenance or preventative medicine, right? It's it's hard. We are practicing sickness. Yes, uh, sickness care. care. Yeah, and frankly, we are practicing sickness care with one size fits all, which is exactly the wrong way to practice good medicine. 
and it's expensive and it doesn't work, right? It, uh, co- it co- costs more money. You should money. mention expense. <laughs> One of the things I did, you know, I, I, I freely admit that when I graduated medical school, I mean, I was a history major in college. I graduated medical school and yeah, I knew a lot about, and then all that training, I knew a lot about medicine and I really didn't know anything about money. I mean, to be very blunt, I just didn't. And I learned all sorts of things when I was in business school so that I could actually read a pro forma that I knew about accounting, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I'm mentioning this is that I decided as part of the book to say, well, we're spending all this money, the United States. Where the heck is the money going? So I sat down and I looked at the federal budget for two years. I think it was 2010 and 2011, but something, you know, 2011, 2012, I can't remember. I studied all of the money flows for two years and to make a very long, quite frankly, boring and painful story short, what I found was this, and this is before Obamacare was implemented. Roughly 40% of all the money that we spend on healthcare, which is over a trillion dollars a year, that 40%, 40% doesn't provide any care in any form. It doesn't go to a hospital, a doctor, a pharmacy, a wheelchair wow. manufacturer, a supplier of linen. It goes to middlemen, to bureaucracy, to uh, agents and compliance officers and and reviewers and billers and coders, billing and coding. The third largest, the largest number of people in any hospital in the United States is nurses. The second largest number of people, uh, people who get paid are doctors. The third largest close to the doctors is billing and coding. They provide nothing that gives the patient any care, but they're incredibly expensive because the system is ridiculously complex, quite frankly, intentionally so. And that's where over a trillion dollars of healthcare spending doesn't provide any care. It just goes into the middlemen, into the bureaucracy. And as a physician, I sit here and I say to myself, How much more care could we give Americans if we had a trillion dollars to pay for care? Oh, my God. Well, we would definitely be healthier. I mean, we don't teach. We don't teach basic health care and maintenance. We don't teach people. You know that. And yes, you're absolutely right. And that's I blame us a, a fair amount. And the reason I do is that we tend to. We, the uh, care providers, tend to think that we control the health of the patient. And we have sold the patients a bill of goods. Okay, you can eat yourself into morbid obesity and we'll give you a pill and it and and we'll fix everything. And right, we'll give and, you insulin, and, heart medication, blood pressure medication, what, and you're whatever. Good to go. <laughs> exactly. Right. We'll just we'll give you this and then it'll be fine. Well, number one. No, it won't be fine. Number two, it is our responsibility to advise the patients on what is best for them, and they need to accept responsibility for themselves. But we're not doing that. Yeah. 
We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk more about this aspect of our healthcare. We're talking with Dr. Dean Waldman today. We're talking about his book, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, States Care and Market-Based Medicine. To learn more, please visit deanwaldman.com on Facebook, Dr. Dean Waldman 21. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is actually a promise. Hang on just a second here. Before we take that little break, I want to talk about my harmless year-round secret obsession. As a regular listener of the show, you know how I love to amuse myself with Best Fiends, my favorite casual mobile game. And during the mayhem of the holiday season, I really love playing Best Fiends when I need a break from all the ho-ho-ho and fa-la-la action. What I love most is that Best Fiends is the best action-packed brain-boosting puzzle game play on the planet. No Wi-Fi, no problem. You can play Best Fiends anywhere. Not to brag or anything, but I'm strategizing and blazing my way towards level 5,768 and counting. Best Fiends is my go-to digital play pal, and I'm happily hooked. And if you're anything like me, you will be too. The fun never ends at Best Fiends because there's always fresh content and new challenges to conquer. Need a little digital distraction? Stress less and play more. Come join me for a squeaky clean good time wherever your holiday travels may take you. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Now let's take that pause. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. This episode was recorded while on the road, and you know what that means. Imperfect sound, imperfect technology, but still that perfect, health-consciously prepared brain food. And we're back, continuing the conversation with Dr. Dean Waldman. We're talking about finding hope in the high-stakes world of medicine and healthcare. Let's get back to it. Dr. Dean, you and I had a passionate little conversation at the break here, talking about the importance of preventative healthcare and using food as medicine and taking care of ourselves and really owning up to the responsibility of, as CEOs of our own lives. And this is part of the answer to our health as well. There's no question that that is central. And if you want to get into this, and I think we should right now, what is really this cause that I keep talking about curing the cancer? Well, the cancer is, if you will, one word in my view, it is disconnection. And by that, I mean, in the old days, if you go back to certainly my grandfather's day, if you go back, there was a doctor, there was a patient, and there was a direct connection between those two. The doctor advised the patient or operated on the patient, whatever that the patient needed, that the patient agreed to, and the patient paid the doctor, period. There was no third-party decision-maker. Yeah. Yes, there was catastrophic insurance and, and loss of wages insurance, which is the original form of uh, medical insurance is for lost wages. But the, the insurance was not a decision maker. The government, through its regulations, did not tell the patient what he could get or not get. 
the government did not ration the care. The insurance company did not tell me what drug I could use or not use on my patient. And so we're getting to the key, which is the disconnection of the patient from a direct link with his or her chosen. He chooses not a panel, the doctor, whatever doctor that uh, patient wants to go to and the patient is responsible for the patient. The doctor yeah. is responsible for providing advice or you know procedures uh, uh, as indicated. And the patient pays the doctor. Now you're going to go, everybody's going to react with, oh, well, I can't possibly afford that. Let me talk to you about that for a second. And that is very important. If you look at the, the information from 2019, I don't think we have yet enough information on 2020, but 2019, average American family spent $28,166 on healthcare. Wow. Of, of which 83%, the vast majority went to an insurance company. Okay. Hello. So I say, wait a minute. If disconnection is the, is the root cause of the sickness in healthcare, and it is. And if, as we said, I think before the break, that almost half of all our healthcare spending goes to the bureaucracy, what if the patient, you, me, whoever, took that $28,000 and put it in an account, bought just catastrophic, high deductible, catastrophic insurance, and otherwise, we paid for and shopped for our health care. What would happen? A, uh, the providers would have to compete for our dollars, which right now they don't. They compete for contracts, not for patients. So the hospitals or the doctors would have to say, hey, come to see me. Here are my results. Here are my prices. And uh, compare me to uh, the doctor down the street or the hospital down the street. And what would happen? Suddenly, we would not be waiting four months to see a primary care doctor, which is a study from uh, Merritt Hawkins two years ago, showed that as a result, by the way, of Obamacare, increased the wait time from 99 days to see a primary care doctor to 176, and I'm sorry, 126 days, just over four months. Let's That's talk a little obscene. bit. That's that, obscene. That, that, that is obscene. But I want to just touch upon uh, Obamacare and accessibility of health care for all. Because OK, go for it. And in order to I mean, in order to have a, a, a nation of healthy people, we have to make health care, good health care available to everybody. People should be able to go and, and, and get blood work and understand what their bodies are doing and, and not doing, but not everybody has access to it. So how and do we the, and the, Okay. Key, you brought up a key and the key is this. Yes, people need access, but no, insurance doesn't guarantee access. And the best example is Medicaid, Take a look at the statistics of the number of doctors who simply won't take care of Medicaid patients 
because the bureaucracy takes an enormous amount of time and the payment schedules are often below the cost of staying in business. So Medicaid gives a patient at this point, 74 million Americans says, "Okay, here's insurance. But the trouble with that is that insurance doesn't get you in the doctor's office, doesn't get you the surgery you need, certainly in the time that you need it. That's why this whole business with, well, we'll insure every American and that'll solve all the problems. That is completely false. Insurance is not care. That's true, too. Insurance is not care. But we do we do need to make healthcare available to all. And I, I and I don't understand enough about the system or the financing behind big health care to have a solution. That's why you're the expert here. But what do you say to to uh, a family who's who the mother and the father, you know, work at day labor jobs or work at low paying jobs where insurance is not offered to them because they only hire them for 30 hours a week to, okay. to avoid having to provide health care. Sure. And when, if, if you uh, t- and you should read the book uh, carefully, if you read the book, you will see two things in answer to that question. And of course, it's a key question. Number one, you design the system around the majority of people, not the small minority of people who are impoverished, uh, the number of people who have severe pre-existing conditions. We're not talking about uh, something minor. We're talking about diabetes. We're talking about uh, those are, are really major chronic lung disease, uh, uh, renal failure. Uh, those are pre-existing conditions that are very, very expensive. Well, you design the system around the average healthy people, and then you provide a safety net for those people. That's what Medicaid was supposed to do. That's what Medicare was supposed to do for our seniors. But the systems became so bureaucratic that the money went to the bureaucracy instead of going to where it needs to go, which is care for patients. And that's why we need, you know, what what I call market-based medicine, which is getting a free market system in healthcare uh, with a safety net. And that's the sort of end of the subtitle. Uh, There's something else that I really need to get in here that's very important. The first half of the subtitle, States Care, is critical. Number one, the federal government, according to the Constitution, is prohibited, I repeat, prohibited from being in health care. If you read the 10th Amendment, it's very clear, uh, the 10th of the Bill of Rights, it's very clear that, that the federal government doesn't belong in health care. So the federal government shouldn't be in health care. However, the state government is has some level of responsibility. I personally would prefer to see a minimum amount of government, but that's that's me, not what I'm recommending for everybody. The word states care is the following. It says, if you're in California and a majority of Californians, and that's 39 million Americans, by the way, think that a single payer system is the best way to go, I actually wrote a book earlier that says single payer won't save us and gives the data. But that's my opinion. I don't live in California. If 39 million Californians want a single payer system, my attitude is they should have a single payer system. If 29 million Texans 
want a free market-based system, which I happen to know is true. I've been advising the state of Texas for the last bunch of years. If that is true, they should be allowed to have whatever system they feel is best. And my point is, Washington shouldn't tell California or Texas or New York or Montana or Rhode Island um, or Florida, you know, uh, big states, um, what they should do with health care. The people in that state should decide what kind of health care system they want. I hear you. I hear you. And you know what? At the end of the day, um, it is up to the consumer, right? It's up to us, the patient, yes. the consumer, to advocate for ourselves, to make our voices heard for the kind of health care that we want. And there is no substitute for that because the more we speak out, the, the, the more likely we're going to be successful in getting our needs met. That is exactly right, which is why this book was written for the average person, not for another systems thinker or a policy expert or, a, frankly, a politician. Most of the politicians who've read this book don't like it. Why don't they like it? Because what it basically says is, hey, I don't want you, politician, to control my health care. I want to control my health care. Yep. I, I hear you. We are out of time. And I wanted to send our listeners over to your website, www.deanwaldman.com, to learn more about you, your work, your books, including the one we're speaking about today, Curing the Cancer in U.S. Healthcare, States Care, and Market-Based I Medicine. have to interrupt for one second and say that my mother put an E on the end of Dean 78 years ago <laughs> on my birth certificate. And I've been paying for that ever since. So... It's D-E-A-N-E, Waldman, W-A-L-D-M-A-N, not just D-E-A-N. Got it. We got it. Dr. Dean with an E at the end. On Facebook, you can find Dr. Dean Waldman 21. That's the page there. Dr. Dean, thanks for, for being with me today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. and I know we could go on for hours, so maybe you'll come back another time, but I appreciate uh, what you've had to share with us today very much, and I think our listeners do as well. Thank you. Thank you. Here comes that quick pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation about finding hope in the high stakes world of medicine and healthcare. My next guest is Dr. David Weil. Dr. David Weil is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and the Lung Transplant Program at Stanford. He is currently the principal of Weil Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of transplant care. He lives with his wife and two daughters in New Orleans, Louisiana. He's here today and we're talking about his book, Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. Welcome, David. Thanks for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me, Lisa. I'm looking uh, forward to it. Oh, me too. It is a pleasure to have you here. This is not something that we've ever covered before on the show, and yet it is a really important aspect 
I believe, of modern medicine, particularly because in in my orbit, there have been two, I think three people I have known who are friends and close to me that have had organ transplants. And little is known, I think, for the, the, the common person about this form of medicine. Tell us a little bit about your story, how you got there, and the stories in Exhale, Hope Healing, and A Life in Transplant. So in my book, I wanted to peel back the curtain of how this kind of complex medical care is delivered. So running a big transplant center like the one I ran at Stanford has a lot of moving parts to it, a lot of personalities, a lot of people trying to take care of a very sick group of patients. And so you can imagine what that life would be like. But I wanted in my book to really not just have the readers maybe imagine it, but actually come in the room with us and see what it, what it's like to do that every day. And I think in your opening, you said how, how much transplant touches people's lives. I think that's true. I mean, there's almost 40,000 solid organ transplants performed each year with 120,000 people on the waiting list in the United States. So if you multiply that year after year, and then all the family members, friends of these folks who are getting transplanted, it really does affect a lot of people. So I think you're right about that. Let's talk for a moment about organ failure and the transplant process, because I think people may not be aware of this. You know, like you get the diagnosis. That's exactly right. So first you have a diagnosis that is amenable to transplant. And so when we talk about solid organ transplant, we're talking about heart, lung, kidney, and liver transplant. So you have a diagnosis that your doctor thinks is amenable to transplant. Then your doctor will refer you to someone like me who can put you through the, the evaluation process to see if you qualify for the waiting list. And then once you go on the waiting list, it's a variable amount of time till you actually get the transplant. But then when we call you for the transplant, that's the big day. The operation happens. And then there's the post-operative period, which can last for decades, uh, depending on how well the transplant goes. So we, as on the physician side, get to know the patients and their families intimately. And I write about this in, in the book about how moved I was by the patient's courage and their perseverance and how I actually became like a family member to many of the patients I cared for. And that, that's what drew me to the field initially. So it's not just the science, you know, of, of medicine, but the very human, you know, connection and intimacy that you form with your patients and their families. Uh, that's absolutely right. I think actually learning the mechanics of transplant and the medical aspect of it was difficult, but probably the most important lessons that I learned had to do with the humanity of doing this kind of work. And there's a certain mystique to transplant, I think, that I recognized early on in my career while I was still training. If you think about it, it's, it's one operation on one night in a person's lives, but it can change the course of their entire existence. In other words, they go from very sick going into the operating room to potentially living a very normal life. And 
when I first saw that as a young trainee, and I write about this in the book when I was an intern on the kidney transplant service back in 1990, we did a transplant the first night that I was on the service and immediately fell in love with the field. I ultimately specialized in lung transplantation, but I saw on that one night how just with the blink of an eye, really, you can change somebody's life forever. Yeah. T- tell us a, a story or two about some of your patients that you have written about in the book, Exhale. I'd love to personalize and, 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 and know some of these characters. Yeah, sure. I write about in the book about a young man who was 19 years old with cystic fibrosis who had learning uh, challenges and was developmentally delayed. And he was turned down by many centers because he was, quote unquote, not considered smart enough to get a transplant. And the question is, could he comply with his medical regimen? Did he know enough to be able to take the medications? Did he have that capability? So we took a chance on him early in my career because I, I believed in him and I believed in the support system that he had around him. And we ended up transplanting him at age 19, and he went on to live for an additional 18 years. And so even though we're tempted at times to take our own value system and apply that to our patients, you know what? At the end of the day, a life is a life, and we shouldn't be the ones that are putting values on, on people's lives. And this young man taught me that when I was a very young physician, and then I saw that time and time again where I – Bucked, bucked the trend, if you will, and took chances on people that I thought could get through the operation and go on to live a very fruitful life. And I write about, you know, I write about other individuals like a young man who developed a rare form of lung cancer who was 35 years old with two young children that, again, was turned down by a number of transplant centers. And we took a chance on him and he went on to do well uh, post-transplant. And the stories go on and on. They're just endless, and they uh, will nourish me for the rest of my life, really. And then there is the other end of the spectrum, where you have somebody who may be considered older, not necessarily old, but maybe has aged out of being the optimal, optimally aged transplant recipient, and they receive the heart or the liver. You, you have a very personal story about this. Yeah, I do. My father actually developed hepatitis C and developed cirrhosis as a result. Uh, He had received a blood transfusion during a hip replacement operation and ultimately needed a liver transplant at age 68. Well, at that time, and this is back in 2001, 68 was considered too old, quote unquote, to get a transplant. And I talked to the liver team at my hospital where I worked at the time, I had him, I had them meet my father. He was an athlete and swam a mile a day. And they said, you know what? We think we can get him through the operation. And he ended up getting a liver transplant and living an additional 12 years afterwards, 12 very important years. You know, he saw, he met his grandchildren. He saw his, his children grow up, uh, all, all sorts of different things. And so I think in the transplant field, we initially had these very rigid age cutoffs, people that we considered too old for transplant, that they wouldn't do very well. But I can tell you, in my three decades in the field, 
we have continually pushed the age criteria back and back and back such that now we're evaluating patients well into their 70s for a transplant. I think that's a good trend because let's face it, I think your listeners will appreciate 70 is not what it used to be. No, you know, 70 is the new, the new 50 <laughs> yeah. in my view. <laughs> I, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And age, and, and I know the cliche is that age is just a number, but it really is because I've seen 70-year-olds that are seem like physiologically they're 45. And of course, I've seen 70-year-olds that also seem like they're 85 physiologically. But I think in the patients that we carefully select, we can transplant patients safely well into their 70s. And let's talk about the other side of transplant, and that is the people who pass, who want to give their organs, want to donate their organs, those family members, the families of those who have passed that either honor the wishes or step up and offer those organs to people who need them. Talk a little bit about that story, because that's equally as is, is amazing. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing act of courage. So if you can imagine a family that gets approached for organ donation is having the worst day of their life. Yeah. Their loved one has been declared brain dead. They've been in an accident. They've had a stroke. Something's happened to them terribly. And then they get approached about organ donation in the midst of all of that. And it's, it's confusing. It's, um, you know, it's approaching somebody at the worst moment of their life. But one organ donor can save eight lives. In other words, with one organ donor, we can actually get eight organs that can save eight other people's lives. And we try, and I've been a big advocate, you know, obviously, for organ donation. But still in America... Only 50% of the people we approach will actually consent for organ donation. And I think a lot of it has to do with cultural issues, socioeconomic ones. Race actually plays a factor in it. And it also has to do with the poor understanding that brain death actually means dead. It meets the medical definition and it meets the legal definition of dead. And it's an act of courage and it's an act of love generosity, compassion, empathy, a way, in my view, to help channel grief, you know, with the prospect that a part of us could actually help somebody else live and thrive. It, it does a whole lot of good. I, it does. And I think that um, folks would be really touched by the letters that are written between the organ recipient and the family that consented for donation. In other words, there's an opportunity after transplant for the organ recipient to actually write the organ donor family a note saying, thank you, you changed my life, you saved my life, what an act of courage, what a gift. If you read, if people could read those letters, and it brings tears to my, tears to my eyes just thinking about it right now, but if you, if you could see those letters, I think people would really appreciate the organ donation process for what it is, which I think is the ultimate gift to another human. Mm, I, I agree. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. David Weil uh, to learn more about his book and himself and his good works in consulting. Please visit DavidWeilMD.com. 
on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Those handles are all the same at David Weil, MD. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. The book we're talking about today is Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with Dr. David Weil, we're talking about finding hope in the high-stakes world of medicine and healthcare. Let's return to the conversation. We're talking about really the world of transplantation medicine. You know, Dr. Weil has been for the past 30 years spearheading transplants of several different types of organs, specializing particularly in lungs. But David, now you're doing consulting and you are working with all different aspects of this process. And I would love for you to touch upon that, what you're doing now. So now I approach transplant more globally. So when I was on the front lines in the hospital, I was obviously treating one patient at a time and working in one program at a time. Now I help a number of programs at the same time that that are struggling in some way, whether it's administratively, financially, clinically, you name it. And so I help a number of transplant programs, and then I think they in turn will help you know, some of the same kinds of patients that I care for. So that's gratifying. And I also help companies that are developing new technologies and new medications to treat transplant recipients. So I feel like I'm, I'm contributing in that, in that way, and that's, that's, that's also been very gratifying. Let's talk for a moment about the process of preparing to receive a transplanted organ, because many people are unaware that you don't just, you know, get the call that the organ is available. There is a whole process to prepare someone's body to receive a foreign part. Yeah, there, there is. And, you know, there's an evaluation process where we put patients through three days of testing and we then take all that data, the results from the test, and we sit around the conference table and have something called the selection meeting, believe it or not. And we have these every week where we decide who goes on the waiting list and, and who doesn't. And it's an amazing experience being inside that room. And I actually write about that room in my book because I think it's such a profound experience. It's an awesome responsibility, really. And so the, the patients go through that process, and then once they go on the waiting list, they have to be ready 24-7, 365. So they're sitting by their cell phone on pins and needles. And at the same time, they're trying to stay alive because they've obviously got a horrible disease that's threatening their life. So we've got to 
take care of the patients on the waiting list and get them to the transplant, we've got to make sure that they're in the best cardiovascular condition they can be. So we have to send them to physical therapists. We have to get them to try to walk on a treadmill. Anything they can do to stay strong, we have to address their nutrition. Anything we can do to make them the best surgical candidate that they can possibly be. And most of the time, that works out fine. But still in America today, one in five patients who are listed for a lung transplant won't make it to the operation. They'll actually die waiting. And that, that's very difficult to accept, you know, obviously for the patient's family, but difficult to accept from where I sit as well, because we want to give patients the chance at the operation. And not being able to give them that opportunity hurts very badly. Oh, I can imagine that's very difficult. And the delay is in, is, is it in receiving a suitable donor lung in this case? Or is, what, what are the complications that, that bring on death before they well, receive the... the yeah. So we have to get more people to donate. We have to get people to tell their family members, not only tell the DMV, but also tell their family members that they want to be an organ donor. So we have to get more people to donate so that we don't lose anybody on the waiting list. And we also have to make sure that we're keeping patients healthy enough so that they can make it to the transplant operation. But the main part of it is making sure that we accept and we utilize all the organ donors that are available to us. And we also make sure that there's enough organ donors out there to service our entire waiting list. And as I mentioned, there's 120,000 people waiting today for an organ. Wow, that's a lot. And, and, and the organ bank or the network that distributes organs is is incredible too. The people who are part of that program, I, I know that, I don't know if I've mentioned it on the air here, but I, we've talked about a, a friend of mine who received a, 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 don, a donated heart when he was in his 30s. He's a doctor as well. And the network, how, how that heart was brought to him is incredible. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, it's a vast network and there's an, a large number of people that are working in what's called OPOs, organ procurement organizations, and there's 57 of them in, in America. So they're scattered throughout the United States. And these folks are actually trying to utilize all the organ donors that are available. And they essentially serve as middlemen and women between the donor hospital and the recipient hospital. So in other words, they're the ones that actually make sure that the organs are well taken care of, that they, have, they talk to the families about donation. They make sure that the organs stay viable until a transplant team can come to the donor hospital and retrieve those organs. So they, they have a big responsibility in this process. So just to clarify, are the teams mobile? In other words, are the teams moving around the country harvesting the organs? I mean, I know that sounds, you know, yeah. harsh, but is that... Well, it's a great it's a great question and one that we've examined closely and I'm, I'm working with a company called Transmedics and, and full disclosure serve on the board of it where we're looking at new ways to to deal with some of the logistical challenges that exist when we try to go get organs remember a transplant team has to be ready all the time yeah. every day all the time and they have to be ready to fly out and get organs 
on a moment's notice. That's very difficult to do. So there's technologies that have been developed that keep the organs alive outside of the body, quote unquote, longer, so that the teams then have an ability to 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 not have to fly immediately, to not have to get there immediately. And I'd like to one day flip that script entirely where the organs, instead of the transplant team having to fly to a remote donor hospital, those organs actually come to the doorstep of the hospital that's doing the transplant. And I'd like to see that happen. And I think one day we are going to see that happen. And that's going to change transplant dramatically. So I think what I hear you saying is that uh, that, that, that the vision is that um, organs will be able to be harvested, preserved for longer periods of time, and then set out in, in, in distribution centers, like a hub-and-spoke type, type system? Yeah, th- that's exactly right. And in fact, we, we've talked with folks. Um, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal and ended up talking with folks from Amazon and FedEx and Walmart. Yes, people that makes sense. Little, uh, <laughs> people that know a little bit about distribution yeah. and, and, and supply chain. And um, I, a guy at FedEx said, at the end of the day, aren't we just moving product? And I said, well, uh, you can look at it that way. It's a little more complicated than you know paper towels and a book. But it's uh, still, at the end of the day, getting something from one location to the other. And I think I think we're getting there too slowly for my taste, but we're getting there. So that brings me to a final question. And then we're going to we're going to need to stop because we've blown through our time together, which is astounding and, and disappointing. So maybe you'll come back and we'll talk more. But when we're talking about moving product, particularly in the last year and a half, you know, that in the era of covid and how vaccine was moved around the country, particularly in the beginning phases of distribution. How did this impact transplant medicine the past couple of years? So COVID had a tremendous impact on transplantation. And when the pandemic first hit in the spring of 2020, transplant activity essentially ground to a halt. So and you can you can easily kind of see why yes because on the one hand we didn't want anybody coming in and out of the hospital that didn't belong there and also the same people that were doing transplant were so busy taking care of co- victims of covid that they just sim- simply didn't have the bandwidth to do transplant that didn't last very long fortunately two or three months seemed like forever, but it was actually two or three months. So transplant activity got back to normal. But what what happened is now we're going to see people that have had COVID, that have had damage to their lungs, require a transplant. And in fact, there's already been well over 100 lung transplants performed in people with COVID pneumonia. Wow. And I think that that's, yeah. And I'm afraid, and I've written about this too, I'm afraid that number is going to go go upward rather dramatically because I think there's going to be not only the people that are acutely ill with COVID, but also people that are, aren't going to recover their lung function entirely because of the residual effects of COVID pneumonia, that they also will need a lung transplant. And I, I don't want to scare the audience. I'm not talking about a large percentage of the people that had COVID. I'm talking about a small percentage. but Unfortunately, so many people have been infected with COVID that that small percentage of people that will require a lung transplant will still be 
a sizable number of people just because of the you know widespread effect that, that the coronavirus has had. And those who have passed as a result of COVID, were they candidates to, to for don for donation, or was their body infected in such a way that they couldn't donate organs? We we could not take those organs yeah. because of the the uh, coronavirus. We didn't want to transmit it to our recipients, um, and we're obviously very carefully testing current donors for the coronavirus to make sure they don't have it. And there's been one reported transmission, inadvertent transmission of the coronavirus from an organ donor to a recipient. That's going to be very rare, but there's been one reported case of that so far. Well, I I have to say that, you know, speaking with you and reading your book, Exhale, Hope Healing and a Life in Transplant has been thought-provoking, inspiring. Um, It makes me... And I, I'm sure our listeners as well feel uh, warmth towards humanity, particularly in these difficult times. And there's great hopefulness, you know, that that we can support a life of multiple lives of others, um, you know, when when misfortune does strike. And like you said, it's the worst day of someone of some family's life when they're asked if they would like to share the organs of their deceased loved one with others. And yet, it it the, the amount of lives it touches, you know, is is exponential. Not just the patient. Absolutely right. And I, I saw it time and time again. And, and believe it or not, the organ donor family, e- even though they were experiencing such grief, there was some consolation in, yeah. in being able to save other people's lives. So it, it's it's a it's a true act of humanity, and one I'm a you know, strong advocate for. A good read, Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant. To learn more about Dr. David Weil, please visit his website, drdavidweilmd.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, you'll find him at David Weil, MD. Dr. Weil, thank you for sharing your time and your journey with us. Thanks, Lisa, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and on behalf of my guests, Dr. Dean Waldman and Dr. David Weil, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day, and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere, from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.